All right, so let's jump into Colossians once again as we're journeying through Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. We read over uh, verses 9 through 23 today, and we're going to uh, walk through verses 11 through 23. So uh, Paul has been telling his readers that Jesus is the pinnacle of reality, the Lord over all creation, and that they are complete in him. He is now going to address the more specific details of the false teaching that some were attempting to smuggle into the church in Colossae. So we, we touched on a little bit of that, but now um, we're going to look at these passages here where Paul deals very uh, specifically. Now, the particulars of this aberrant teaching seem to have been a blend of Greek philosophical thought and Jewish ceremonialism and angelology. Uh, so Paul has already refuted the Greek idea. Remember, that was that Jesus was an emanation from God uh, rather than God himself. Uh, all through the first chapter and the early part of the second chapter, Paul, uh, he puts that to rest. He shows that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that, that in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. And so... Uh, he's now going to proceed to deal with the, uh, the Jewish aspects of the false teaching. And so he's going to talk about uh, circumcision. He's going to talk about uh, festivals and Sabbaths. And uh, he's going to talk about angels and, and things like that. So uh, that, that's what we're going to be looking at as we move forward. But before we get into that, let me just say that throughout all church history, there has been a relentless effort on the part of the devil to in some way, shape, or form undermine the church's faith in the person and work of Christ. And because that's a reality, we are all called to contend for the faith. So this, this is part of, of the Christian life. It, it's obviously uh, uh, you know, part of what Christian leaders do, you know, people that God appoints to the position of pastor or evangelist or whatever the case might be. Uh, you know, part of our job is to contend for the faith and that's, that's really true of every Christian. Because there has been and continues to be, as I said, this relentless effort on the part of the enemy to undermine the church's collectively uh, confidence in Christ and our confidence in Christ uh, personally. So the apostles and church leaders did it in their generation, and we must do it in our generation as well. Now, the battles will not necessarily be over the same issues, but they will always be aimed at detracting from the person and work of Christ and bringing confusion regarding the believer's walk and relationship with him. So, and, and we're seeing both of those things in the text. So uh, first of all, through the Greek philosophical thought, 
detracting from the person and work of Christ. And now getting into the Jewish components, it's bringing confusion about um, you know, our behavior and you know, how we can really relate to God and so forth. And, and that's been pretty much the way it works all throughout history. Now, uh, our big challenges today are obviously not the infiltration of Greek and Jewish teaching into our churches, but we are still confronted regularly with human ideas that exalt themselves above the word of God and other religious beliefs and practices that want to draw us away from our trust in Christ alone. So those are always the underlying factors and then they just uh, manifest themselves in, in different forms throughout history. So we need to continue to remind ourselves of the fact that we are in a battle. We are in a spiritual battle, a battle that is not against flesh and blood, meaning it's not against other people. It's not against human beings, but it's against the rulers of the darkness of this world, a host of wicked spirits in high places, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 6. And we fight this battle um, not with the, the weapons of the flesh, but we fight this battle with the spiritual weapons of prayer, proclamation of God's word, and living in the power of the Holy Spirit. So whether we like it or not, or are comfortable with it or not, we need to understand that the Christian life is a fight from start to finish. That is what it is. Now, you know, I think today sometimes you, you kind of have the two sort of extremes. You know, you have, uh, you have the Christian who is the fighter, the, the pugilist, you know, the, the Christian who wants to fight uh, with everybody. And a, a lot of times they want to fight with other Christians. And that's certainly not the fight that we are to be uh, wrapped up in. Um, but so you've got that extreme, but then you've got the other extreme where somebody is so passive, they just feel like, well, you know, we should never really speak up. We should never really say anything. Uh, even though this person has embraced some false teaching, we just need to love them and, and just let, you know, live and let live sort of a thing. And, and, you know, both of those positions are wrong. We have to take a stand on the, the truth of God's word and as I said, quoting from Jude chapter one, verse three, we are to contend for the faith. I love what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said, Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God has made the world that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and taste and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story but it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. I think C.S. Lewis is right about that. And, and we're gonna find as we seek to live according to the truth of God's word, it's gonna put us in uh, the crosshairs of the enemy and we're, we're gonna be engaged in a battle. But that is just, as I said, that is part of, of our calling. That, that is what we do. And so Paul here in the passages before us, 
Paul is contending against these, um, these Jewish ideas now that have, that have also been combined with the, the Greek philosophy. And so Paul's going to contend against ritualism, ceremonialism, spiritualism, and asceticism. And so let's look at each one of those in order. So um, remember, Paul has said, uh, speaking of Christ in verse nine, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then he said, you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And now he deals with the ritual uh, thing that was being imposed by some upon the Colossians. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So evidently what these teachers were suggesting to the Colossians, and this is where the Jewish component comes in, they were suggesting that they needed to be circumcised. And this, this was, you know, common... Um, <clears throat> Uh, Paul deals with this frequently because of the Judaizers. The Judaizers, remember, they were the ones who uh, taught that basically you had to be a Jew in order to really be a Christian. Now, the difference here with this particular um, <clears throat> group or the, these people that were trying to influence Colossians is that they were blending Greek thought and Jewish thought together. And they, they'd come up with just a, a weird combination uh, but circumcision was part of it. And so what does Paul say to this? Basically, what he's saying is that Christ, Christ trumps that. Christ is, uh, if, if you have Christ, circumcision is, physical circumcision is not an issue because in Christ, what circumcision symbolized in Christ, it has happened um, in, in our experience. So circumcision was symbolic of cutting away the old life of the flesh. So when, a, when a, a, a male child, eight days old, was circumcised, this was a symbolic act. This was part of their entering into the Abrahamic covenant, but it was symbolizing um, the cutting away of the the, the sin life, really. Um, it, it was all symbolic. But Paul says, in Christ, the symbolic was fulfilled by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh. So these guys are coming in saying, oh, you, you need to be circumcised. Paul says, you don't need to be circumcised because circumcision was talking about something bigger than just that physical act. It was talking about uh, putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. And that's what happened when we came to Christ. When we come to Christ, we die to sin and now we live to God. And then he goes on and he gives a little further explanation. He says, buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so we've been uh, circumcised in Christ. We've been buried with him and we've been raised to, as he says here, this new life. And so verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, 
having forgiven you all trespasses. So Christ uh, triumphs over ritualism. Uh, secondly, he speaks of ceremonialism. And so he goes on and verse 13, and uh, let, me, let me read verses uh, 13 through 15. And then we're gonna come back to them at the end. But he says, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, uh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. So let no one judge you. So since Christ has done this for us, Paul now says, let no one judge you regarding these ceremonies. So again, the Jewish idea was, uh, you have to be circumcised to, to really be saved. Now, another Jewish idea was, well, you, you're gonna have to keep these, uh, these various festivals and things like that. The one that stands out the most, of course, is the Sabbath. Um, not many people today are tempted to uh, you know, add to their, uh, their Christian life uh, dietary restrictions and things, some, some are. Uh, but he says, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival, a new moon or the Sabbaths. And even to this very day, we find that there's still uh, this idea that, that comes up. Some groups have fully embraced it. Some just sort of uh, toy around with it. But that somehow the Sabbath is a, a factor in our salvation that you really uh, you must observe the Sabbath. It's part of the commandments. There's a, a denomination uh, that's, you know, somewhat of a cult, but there are some genuine Christians in the denomination. The Seventh-day Adventist is built on the idea of the Sabbath and the need to keep the Sabbath. And they have dietary rules and things added to that. But, but Paul is writing to the Colossians. And every time somebody asks me about the Sabbath, this is the passage I take them to because it answers the question. Paul says, let no one judge you regarding these various things or the Sabbath. And then what does he say? Which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So you see, these things we're talking, just like circumcision was talking about something else, it was symbolic of this greater experience of the body of the sins of the flesh being put away. Um, so the Sabbath was talking about something greater. And so I tell people this all the time, based on uh, Hebrews chapter four, Christians, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, we are in a perpetual Sabbath. Because what we've done is we've entered into the rest of Christ. So when somebody comes to me and says, hey, you know, what day of the week do you worship on? And uh, no, the day is, you know, Saturday. And are you keeping the Sabbath? Just say, look, uh, I'm, I'm on a continual Sabbath. The moment I received Christ, I entered into his rest. And so the Sabbath was a shadow of the rest that Christ would bring to those who trust in him. And that's what's happened. We trust in Christ and now we're resting in his work. I'm not, I'm not trying to save myself any longer. 
I'm not living under this pressure or this anxiety that, oh no, I don't know if I'm going to make it because uh, I, I haven't faithfully kept the Sabbath. No, I'm, I'm on a perpetual Sabbath. And so Paul shows the superiority of Christ over ceremonialism. And then he moves on and he's going to deal with um, spiritualism. And so he says in verse 18, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. So spiritualism or another, another way to put this would maybe be, um, you know, hyper spirituality. Um, but, but it's a spiritualism in the sense that notice he, he talks about this worship of angels. And so this idea that somehow angels are um, more directly involved in our worship and in our, uh, our, you know, relationship with God than they actually are. Now, angels are involved. We know that because the Bible tells us that angels are involved. But we don't communicate with angels. We don't have any direct contact with them. We're never encouraged to seek them or anything like that. You know, if God wanted to send an angel to us, uh, he very well could do that. He did that, you know, throughout the scripture. But, uh, you know, under the new covenant, it's the Holy Spirit that uh, does that communication with us. So, but, but Paul's talking here about this spiritualism where they have... Uh, actually um, a false humility. So there's an appearance of a humility, but Paul says it's a false humility. And there's a worshiping of angels involved in this. And then he says about them intruding into, uh, basically intruding into the unseen realm. They are arrogant, they're lifted up with pride and they're driven by the flesh. And so he's talking about people who are who are hyper-spiritual, but their hyper-spirituality has caused them to not trust fully in Christ, but to trust in these other things, to trust in uh, angels somehow, that angels are, are somehow a factor in our, like I said, our worship, our relationship with God, and so forth. We don't know the exact details of, of what all of that meant, but um, of course we can see this kind of thing still Today, there are times when uh, people will just come up with ideas that are, they're, they're ideas that are going to take a person away from trusting in Christ alone. And with the advent of the internet, uh, you can find thousands of these. Don't go searching for them. Take my word for it. Uh, you can find thousands of these aberrant uh, ideas where people are, um, you know, seeking to, to draw, and, and again, remember, there's a spiritual force behind this. They're seeking to draw people away from their full confidence in Christ, put their confidence in something else. But, but I like the way Paul puts it here. He says, intruding into uh, the unseen realm. And, and that's what's happening here. They're, they're, they're trying to go into a space that they have no um, no ability to get into, no right to go into. And it's because of arrogance. 
And because of this arrogance, they are being driven by their fleshly mind and they're no longer trusting in their connection with the head. So it's, it's the picture of a body that's kind of become spastic because it's disconnected from the head. And so um, Christ is over. He's triumphant over spiritualism. And then fourthly, uh, Christ is triumphant over asceticism. And so that's what he deals with when he comes to verse 20. He says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So let's talk about asceticism for a moment. What is asceticism? Asceticism is the harsh treatment of the body in order to merit divine favor and spiritual power. Asceticism has been a problem from, from the earliest days, and, and Paul's addressing it right here. You know, it's that idea that the body is evil, and so the body must be uh, suppressed, and the body must be treated harshly uh, if we're really going to please God. And this crept into the church and has uh, in some ways almost subconsciously remained in many manifestations of the church. And I, I think one of the, one of the most um, pronounced versions of it is in Roman Catholicism. Because in Roman Catholicism itself, um, there is the undercurrent that, that pretty much um, you know, emphasizes this kind of a thing where you, in order to really be right with God, you must, uh, you must deal harshly with the body. This is where the, the monastic uh, ideas came in, that you would separate yourself completely from the world, that you would separate yourself from all the pleasures of the world, from the pleasures of food, from the pleasures of uh, you know, romance and sex and those kinds of things that, you know, so there would be a, a vow of celibacy and, and these kinds of things. Now, if a person wants to take a vow of celibacy, that's fine. As long as you don't think that this is what must be done in order to obtain God's favor. And that was the mistake that was made. And <clears throat> so it was manifested in these kinds of rules. Do not taste, do not touch, uh, do not handle. And notice he says that these are the doctrines and the commandments of men. So the idea that you're going to somehow obtain the favor of God by not touching, not tasting, and not handling things, that's not Christianity. And, and this has been one of the most subtle and, and one of the most um, damaging doctrines uh, throughout the long history of the church because it's put people in this place where um, your religion is oppressive. Religion is to, to put you down. Religion is to prevent you from becoming, uh, you know, the person that you could potentially be. And you must do all of this in order to somehow hopefully save your soul. And so people see that as Christianity and they say, well, I don't want that. And understandably, who does want that? 
That, but know this, that's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. Paul says that these things are the doctrines and the commandments of men. Now, I mentioned Roman Catholicism. I'm not here to pick on Roman Catholics. I just want to make a couple of observations. Um, within the Roman Catholic system, of course, you have in their, in their priesthood, you have the requirement of celibacy. So the priests have not um, married historically in, in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, this is part of this uh, ascetic idea that as a, as a really holy person, you are going to deprive your body of that pleasure of having a relationship with a woman. Now, the problem, as we're gonna see in the final verse here, the problem is that that doesn't really do anything to change your inward disposition. And we know that's a fact because we've seen all of the scandals within the Catholic Church over not just recent years, but over the centuries, sexual scandals. And it's due to this uh, imposition of this celibacy on the priest that the scriptures never uh, uh, validated. That, that is not a scriptural idea. It's an ascetic idea. And so Paul, he, as I said, he is um, showing that this is not the gospel. And he says about this, notice he says that these things have, verse 23, an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and the neglect of the body. Oh, so they have an appearance of wisdom. And, and it is true, whether it's uh, you know, the Roman Catholic priesthood or if it's uh, a Buddhist monk or if it's a Hindu uh, sh uh, you know, priest or whatever it is, you know, there's this sense of, oh, you know, look at this wise person and you know, they've, they've really understood how to, how to navigate life and they've denied themselves and all of this stuff. And whether it's in those kinds of uh, places that we see it, or maybe just, uh, you know, the person in the evangelical church who is that one who, oh, well, I, you know, I just live a life of self-denial. Oh, well, you know, I can't do that because I'm fasting this week or whatever, that kind of stuff. Oh, it seems like, wow, that, that's really holy. That person is a wise man. Paul says it's an appearance of wisdom, but it's only an appearance. And then he says this, and this is the amazing thing. He says, because these things are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, this is not how you live a life that pleases God because this doesn't, it doesn't work. That's the problem. It might look like it's working because outwardly you might seem to be humble. Paul says it's a false humility. Uh, outwardly, you might seem to be holy. Outwardly, you might seem to be spiritual. Outwardly, you might seem to be a wise person because you've denied yourself of all of these things. But Paul says the reality is these things are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, this will not conquer your flesh. Asceticism will not conquer your flesh. The only thing that can conquer your flesh is the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul says to the Galatians, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, uh, an illustration here and an excellent case in point, I, I already mentioned the monastic lifestyle, but 
let's talk for just a quick second about the reformer Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a monk. And Martin Luther was a monk who was deeply dedicated to the idea that he could, uh, through uh, an ascetic life, that he could kill these desires within him and, and therefore please God. But what Luther discovered, hidden away in his uh, monastery, what he discovered is that all of those passions and all of those things were still raging within him, no matter how much he denied uh, himself. Even though he wasn't practicing those things, the desire to do them was still there. And he came to that place of just uh, despair. You know, how, how can I even go on? But he actually came to the best place you could come to. He came to the place that Paul came to, uh, trying to please God under the law, where he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And it was when Luther realized that all of his diligent efforts to uh, suppress his desires by treating his body harshly and all of that, he realized that it was futile. It did not accomplish what he thought it was going to accomplish. It was then that he cried out uh, for God's mercy. He realized, no, the just shall live by faith, by faith in the finished work of Christ. And so that's what Paul is uh, dealing with here. And he's just telling us that um, again, the whole point is that asceticism or ceremonialism or ritualism or spiritualism, these have no place in your life because you're in Christ. And in Christ, you're complete, as, as we pointed out before. There's, there's nothing you can add to this. Now, let's go back. And as I said, I wanted to tie everything together by looking again at verses 13 through 15, because this is the key. And the key is the cross. Christ's victory over all is the victory that comes through the cross. So I, I want to read verses 13 through 15 again, but I'm going to read them from the NIV. So listen, it says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities. These are the spiritual powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. So you see, because, what Paul is saying is because of what Jesus did on the cross, this idea that you need to be circumcised or that you need to keep uh, certain holy days or that you need to uh, you know, eat certain types of food or avoid certain types of food or you need to treat your body harshly or you need the assistance of angels, all of that. Paul is just saying that is uh, just not even remotely what <laughs> the, the gospel is proclaiming. The gospel is proclaiming the, the total um, and complete work of Christ in saving us. And our job is to trust in that. So look at, look at what he says um, in verse 13. 
he says, he says that he's forgiven our sins or our trespasses. So that's where it all starts. He's forgiven our sins. Our past is our past and God's forgiven it. And as the um, psalmist reminds us that as far as the East is from the West, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. So he's forgiven us our sins. And then he says, this is the interesting thing here. He says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He took it out of the way by nailing to the cross. What is this handwriting of requirements that was against us? That was the law. The law are the requirements of the, this is what God requires for a person to be accepted by him. Why does Paul say it's against us? It's against us because we can't keep it. And so the law is holy, just, and good, like he says in Romans 7. The problem is I am sinful. I'm sold under sin. So, so this law has become, rather than something that could save me, it has become something that condemns me. It, it was contrary to me, but listen to what he says. He says that, that Jesus, by the cross, he took that, that uh, law and he nailed it to the cross. And so what he did is he removed the condemnation of the law by meeting its requirements. We couldn't meet its requirements and therefore we stand condemned under it. But Jesus comes and he does what we can't do. He meets the requirements of the law and he not only meets the requirements of the law, then he on the cross, pays the penalty for those who had fallen short. And so now the law is no longer a factor. The law is removed. It's no longer condemning me because Jesus kept it. And he's perfectly righteous. And now I'm not under the law as a means of righteousness. I'm in Christ. And in doing that, he goes on and he says this. He says that through this, he has... Uh, disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. Now, th this is fascinating. What does this even mean when it says that he disarmed these powers of darkness? And see the connection here. The connection is when he, when he met the requirement of the law, nailed it to the cross, removed it, this is how he disarmed the principalities and powers. How, how does that happen? Well, you see what he did, Jesus took away their power to hold us in bondage to condemnation and fear. You see, the law was the leverage that the principalities and powers held over us and, and over all people. Because even outside of the, the Jewish context, if you look at the ancient world and if you look at the present world, everybody, and, and it's interesting because uh, Paul here, when he's speaking about the, um, when, he, when he speaks about the, uh, the principles of the world in verse 20, therefore, if you died uh, <clears throat> with Christ from the basic principles of the world, the principles of the world could be translated the elemental spirits. And the idea there is that this universal experience of people knowing they're falling short of a law of some sort, living in condemnation, 
living in fear that leads to idolatrous practices of making sacrifices to the gods and all of those kinds of things. This is a way that the principalities and powers uh, keep humanity in bondage. And, and what Paul is saying to the, to the Colossians is don't go back under that. You have, you have been brought out from that. But, but this is how it worked because when we know that we've sinned, or we, we, let's, let's say we don't even call it sin. Let's just say a person who's not even a believer, but they know that there's some standard. It's just, it's there, it's undeniable, regardless of whether they even believe it or not, because they, they live according to it and they feel good if they feel like they've lived up to the standard, whatever it is. They feel bad if they feel uh, that they've you know, lived below the standard. Uh, they feel condemned. And this is how the enemy keeps people in bondage and basically torments humanity. But Jesus came and for those who put their trust in him, he took their power away from them they are no longer able to keep us in bondage to condemnation and fear. So you see, in Christ, I, I'm not, I know I'm not condemned. So in Christ, I have no fear of this judgment looming over me that forces me to try to do something to uh, free myself from that. That's all done away with in Christ. I, I think there's a picture uh, that illustrates this in the scripture in Zechariah. There's a, there's a picture in Zechariah chapter three uh, of the high priest Joshua. Let me read it to you. It says, then he, the angel showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this man, Joshua, not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, see, I have removed your sin from you. I will clothe you in rich robes. This picture right here is basically what Paul is talking about. How those principalities and powers have now been disarmed because in the cross, the Lord has rebuked them. That, that condemning voice, that leverage that the principalities and powers hold over humanity because of our failure to live up to the law, that's all been done away with in Christ. Now, of course, the vast majority of people in the world don't know that and haven't embraced that. So they go on living under... Um, all of these different standards. You know, even our secularists today, even our, our, our atheists in our uh, culture, you find that they have strong uh, moral standards. Their moral standards are different than what we would have as Christians, but they're strong moral standards. And if you violate them, you're condemned. And in some cases, you, you should be judged. They, they want to judge you for violating. But it just shows the reality that there, there is this uh, thing that's working that all people know about, that there is uh, an obligation to a law that I'm not living up to. And so Jesus, just like uh, the Lord rebuked Satan, who was there to accuse Joshua, and then the Lord provided that righteousness for Joshua, that's what's happened for those who 
trust in Christ. So we see here Christ's victory over sin, over death, and over the spiritual powers. And we see that it all comes through the cross. And so his death and resurrection forever secures all who put their trust in him. Nothing to be added. It is finished. Christ is victorious over all. He is all we need. That's what Paul is telling the Colossians. Christ is all you need. You have Christ. There's, there's nothing to add to Christ. If you try to add to Christ, you're diminishing from his work. So what does that mean? That means just simply keep trusting him. That means rest in him. That means go deeper and deeper in him and you will find not only all the, the fulfillment and satisfaction and cleansing and, and all of that, you'll find that, uh, but you'll also find the power to live the way God wants you to live. And you'll find the purpose that he has for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the amazing victory of Jesus on the cross and what that has accomplished. And Lord, how you've, you've removed that burden from us. Lord, you've lifted that weight of, of those requirements that were against us and how you've brought us into this place of just resting. Lord, that we are on a continual Sabbath because of the finished work of Jesus. And Lord, we know that it's from there that we're going to um, enjoy life most. And we know that it's from there we're going to be most productive uh, in our service to you. So, so help us, Lord, to just continue to go back over and over again. When we're tempted by ritualism or ceremonialism or some kind of spiritualism or asceticism, when we're tempted to fall into that, Lord, help us to just fall back on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that you've disarmed those principalities and powers. Thank you that you displayed your victory over them on the cross. And we thank you that the ultimate victory is, is yet to be displayed um, when you come and set up your righteous kingdom. And the Lord, in the meantime, may we be faithful servants of the risen Christ. Lord, I pray for anyone uh, watching this morning uh, online. I pray for anyone who's here on the campus that has not received the, the, just that beautiful salvation that leads to rest and peace. I pray that their hearts would be open, that they'd realize there's nothing that they can do. There's no contribution that they need to make. They just simply need to trust you. And Lord, you're going to bring them into that place of rest and peace and spiritual prosperity and productivity. So work in hearts. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.